Yeah, you know, this electoral map just looks like a whole lot of nothing. I think we're allowed to say that, that it's not a partisan thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> just so everyone knows, at the time of this recording, nobody has won yet the presidency. I've been eating a lot of food because of all the stress of this. <laughs> I don't know what you've been doing, Justin, but it's been a lot. I mean, I feel like when it comes to election stuff, it's the higher the calories and the better it can fit into a bowl, the more suitable it is for, uh, <laughs> you know, a stressful night of paying attention to the news. I mean, if I literally <laughs> could just melt down some butter and uh, just spoon that into my mouth. I mean, anything that makes me feel tired and full at the same time makes me disconnect. <laughs> Uh, it's probably for the best, to tell you the truth. Right. It's just if you fall asleep, maybe when you wake up, there will be a president. Exactly. <laughs> With that said, hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleho. We're recording this episode on Wednesday, November 4th. There's been a lot of tension and division, a lot of headaches, a lot of really annoying conversations with family, I'm sure. So we wanted to pause and phone a Canadian who has a very refreshing amount of clarity about what he believes and how he wants the world to be better. I'm a Chinese guy. I post about Chinese food. What could I potentially do to help our black brothers and sisters? It started with tough conversations, starting with my parents and my family and friends. I think it starts at home. That's Clarence Kwan, a Torontonian who works at a New York-based Black-led social impact agency and he cooks part-time in a Chinese barbecue restaurant. His new cooking zine, Chinese Protest Recipes, aims to support the Black Lives Matter movement and raise awareness about racism and white supremacy, both in the Asian diaspora and in the world at large. Stay tuned to hear about the project Clarence is working on and how a recipe can be a protest, how to talk about racism within the Asian diaspora, and maybe some stuff about Drake, who is also from Toronto and is a huge rapper, and I might talk about him. We're so excited to talk to you, Clarence. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. <laughs> so first of all, it's always helpful to start with describing your project, because that's the reason why we have you on the show, because I saw your zine, and it's amazing, and I instantly wanted to talk to you. So tell us about Chinese protest recipes. What's it about? Why did you make it? So Chinese Protest Recipes is a zine. It's a recipe book. Um, it, it's a project that I started essentially after this sort of racial uprising began. It was a response to both the reaction that Chinese communities have been receiving since COVID started um, and also a response to the death of George Floyd. And so this project was, it's a very personal project. It's a way of me speaking out. And it originally started as a takeover, actually. Doof Magazine asked me to come over to their account and, and do a one-week takeover. And I wanted to do something meaningful. I had started to really speak out on a lot of these issues just through my little food IG. And I wanted to create something uh, that I could do all week that could actually uh, be of, some, of use to somebody uh, and, and be meaningful. Um, and so I created... This project, it was seven recipes over seven days, and I made some merch, some t-shirts, and all the proceeds, 100% of the proceeds go to support Black Lives Matter. And so that was my kind of personal expression. It was, it's kind of a personal uh, examination of you know, my feelings and the experience I've been going through um, 
in this racial pandemic? So the, the, the thing that jumps out at me is just, I love the kind of interesting confluence between a lot of food Instagram people or food writers have been a lot more political in the past summer. You know, they could have been political beforehand, but, you know, this is like the catalyst for a lot of them. Um, and I love the idea of a protest recipe. I think that is such a confrontational idea. And I'm curious to hear you articulate, like, how can a recipe be a protest? Well, I think at first I just thought of what was a very natural way for me to speak out and protest, right? So during COVID, I didn't feel totally comfortable being on the streets and, and protesting in real life. And so I just thought of what was really natural to me. And so because I essentially posted about Chinese food and, and Cantonese food, I thought I'm going to use this as my teeny platform to speak out. And I think it's a cliche, but food is naturally political. You know, food is can be a weapon. It's weaponized against us. And so I wanted to use recipes as a way to tell my personal story, our story as a Chinese community, and speak real truths and, and kind of demystify the myth of our food. Because quite frankly, our food has been the way, an entry point into attacking Chinese people for hundreds of years now. And so this was my version of speaking up, speaking out against all the vitriol that's coming our way, and also essentially against white supremacy. It's a was a way for me to speak out against all the issues and forces that are happening right now in social injustice. One of the things that I really love about your work, Clarence, man, is that um, I think in having these conversations, uh, you know, about race issues, about, about the country itself, about um, food, about all these topics, I think relatability is really important. And there's something about the work that you do that just feels accessible to a lot of people who are willing to listen to what you got to talk about. The thing that I'm like extra curious about is like, you know, with the confluence of like this anti-Asian racism, you know, especially during the pandemic. And then we also have the shootings of black men and we, you know, we're focusing on, uh, on Black Lives Matter. There is a specific group when it comes to like protesting and doing this kind of work. There's a specific group, you know, usually white people that we're trying to talk to about these issues, right? Like that you want this information to, to reach them and to ha them have some kind of understanding. But do you ever get worried that, while people like you and us, like while we do this work, that we're just talking to each other, like we're ending up sharing shit with each other and like co-signing our own work and being like, yeah, that's a great point, but it's not reaching the people that you want. Like, how do you make sure that it does get in front of the people that, you know, you want to give a message to? Yeah, that's a really good question, because I think the last thing I want to do is become an echo chamber for just the people who know, you know, and just end up talking to ourselves. I think the style in which I speak and write, the directness and the volume in which I write is really towards, mm. I think, people who don't quite get it. You know, there are plenty of white people who are in the fight, who know what's up, who get it. But my, you know, imaginary audience, the people that I'm speaking to are people who do not see it. What gives me fuel and gives me motivation is that a lot of people respond and say, hey, Thank you, because I did not get it. I thought I got it, but now I get it more. Or there are people who just like straight up do not get it. And like, I don't understand, like, what is up with this? And if they are willing to engage, 
what I've seen is there is a huge learning gap and that mm. is the opportunity. And that is, I think, what keeps me hopeful that we can continue these conversations because ever since I have started speaking out, the response has been overwhelming that there's just simply so many people, both white and non-white, that do not understand and see that these issues exist, both in the food world and beyond. You know, doing the doing the work that you do isn't just something that you wake up and roll out of bed and do and have plenty of energy. Like there's an emotional toll to thinking deeply about, you know, these issues, right? Especially when it comes to food and trying to like disseminate a message. Can you talk about that too? Like how, you know, you got to keep yourself inspired. How are you taking care of yourself while also doing this? I guess is the better question. Yeah, I think anytime you put yourself out there, you know, with this kind of language and these, you know, hot topics, right? You're going to have emotion come right back at you. I've managed to figure out my own personal boundaries of like, how and when I post um, and how I deal with potential like hate or um, conflict that might come back my way. I mean, I think I'm pretty good at just kind of maintaining like who I am, but it's hard. I know a lot of people in this fight, a lot of people who are dealing with these kinds of this kind of work that it does take a toll. And I think for everybody, they need to figure out their version of self-care and uh, mm. realize that it is a long fight. Like it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so... Um, I've just personally set up boundaries for myself. So on the flip side of that, I would love to hear from you any sort of successes that you can think of recently mm. where you did reach somebody and just how did that happen? I think that happens pretty regularly. I think anyone who's willing to engage, they'll ask questions like, oh, hey, like, what about this recipe? Or what about this food mascot? You know, like, am I doing something wrong? I want to cook another cuisine. Um, do you think I'm having the right approach here? And so I get a lot of questions. The end result is always like, oh, I I get it now. The amount of awakening is is real and there's tons there. But th there are constantly white people in my DM who are willing, learning and come out better on the opposite side. So that that's what feels really that's hopeful awesome. right now. Okay. Um, so I'd love to talk also about Chinatown, which is sort of a character in the zine. There's a lot going on with the rhetoric about Chinatown and just... Can you articulate just what does Chinatown mean to you as a symbol, as a place? I mean, first of all, I grew up in Chinatown. So I grew up in uh, Eastside Chinatown in Toronto. That's where my grandparents lived. My grandfather was a uh, head master chef in uh, Westside Chinatown in Toronto um, at Bay and Dundas. And it, it is the way my family and I think most immigrant Chinese families have grown up, you know, it was one of the few industries where we could actually, where we were allowed to work and thrive, um, you know, starting from the beginning of Chinese immigration, right? It was either Chinese food or laundry, like there was no other choice. And so Chinatown is both a kind of safe haven, but also basically it's my heart and soul, you know, it's like where I grew up, it's where you see uh, generations of Chinese people thrive and prosper. And then also, because of what's happening right now, you're seeing Chinatowns crumble uh, left, right, and center, you know, because of racism, because of xenophobia, because of gentrification. These are communities that are really struggling to survive right now. I'm thinking about the generation right now of young Asian people who are 
protesting for just in the movement right now and though and the kids in that generation who grew up with ties to Chinatown. And I imagine like I can't relate to this 100 percent, but I understand the idea of like those young people remembering, I don't know, maybe having like school experiences where they ate what their family cooked. Like, you know what I mean? Like bringing something specific to lunch that your parents made that might not have been like the hyper white ham and cheese sandwiches that other kids had. And then maybe there was like an insecurity element to it when you're younger. But as you get older, you embrace that stuff and start real, you know, I think there's a lot of young people that want to hold on to their background, amplify their background, be really uh, proud of it. And do you think like there's a generation of young kids who are part of that protest generation right now who have connections to Chinatown when they were younger that were kind of built for this moment? You know, like they think about those like childhood memories and it makes them more proud of what they have now. What I see is a lot of young Asian Americans really lean into their power and reclaiming their cultural heritage and cultural identity. And the best way to do that is through food. You know, I think every Asian kid, probably a lot of BIPOC kids, a lot of black and brown kids have been racialized, uh, discriminated against and shit on because of what they ate. You know, like food is a way to hate on us. Um, You know, I can speak from my own personal experience where my mom made the sickest hot, like thermos meals of like, you know, smelly, you know, fish on rice. Mm. And I threw that out or I traded it away or I was embarrassed to bust it out because of, you know, it wasn't ham and cheese and wasn't pizza and wasn't fries. And so I think every, you know, non-white kid who grew up bringing that food at a lunch, at a cafeteria, yeah. uh, has experienced that sort of discrimination. And it's food. It's like, it's, it's what we eat. It's like, it's such an old story and it still happens today. I get a lot of DMs from people who are like, yeah, I'm like 40 and oh, I still wow. get side eye from <laughs> yeah. people who like look at my food <laughs> differently. And so I think with social media and the ability to, you know, speak your voice and and tell your story and, and connect through food, it it's a huge um, right. vehicle to for power to like, I'm going to be eat uh, and love like everything about my culture like wholeheartedly unapologetically and like no one's gonna mm. say anything about it because you you can't touch me anymore you know like we're not gonna be you know we're not gonna be bullied about how our food looks or how it smells like i couldn't care less like i could <laughs> i could do both i can make ham and cheese and i can make you know a clay pot rice like you, you can't touch me and i think that's the attitude and the, and the kind awesome. of power a lot of young asian americans have right now You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Soleil Ho, and we're back with Clarence Kwan. So there's the, you know, the self kind of realization angle that is really important and fascinating with regards to, you know, interracial relations. But I also admire that you took on this really complicated and kind of hard to talk about topic, which is anti-Black racism in the Asian community, specifically the Chinese community. It's, I think a lot of people struggle with that because they don't know how to have that conversation or just the, the prejudice is so deeply ingrained in the community, whether it's among elders or peers. Like, what have you seen of it? Why is it so prevalent? And just how, like, what's informed your conversations about it? 
Well, first of all, when I started Chinese protest recipes, a big motivation was what could I personally do, right? So I'm a Chinese guy. I post about Chinese food. Like, so what? Like, what could I potentially do to help our black brothers and sisters? And part of that was to speak up, like put it into action. And so it started with tough conversations, starting with my parents and my family and friends. And it is a real thing. You know, I think racism, shadism, I mean, you're seeing it in China, in Chinese politics um, with um, the Uyghur community and, and Africans in China right now. It is, it is prevalent. And we really don't talk about it. We probably haven't addressed it enough. I think a lot of Asian kids grew up being taught like, hey, keep your head down. Don't get too close to black kids. I heard that when I was a kid. And so when you're talking about not only being like not racist, but anti-racist, we have to start dismantling those ideas within our own community first. You know, it's not just about like white supremacy or it's about like the oppressor. It's it starts at home. And so for me, uh, I know that that definitely exists in older generation, probably in the younger generation, too. They're just such old stereotypes and such old ideas. And the relationship between Asian and black communities have been complex across America for a number of years. And I think it's getting better, but the gap is still there. And so in order to bridge that divide, we have to start at home. You have to talk to your parents. Language is often a big barrier. And there have been just so many tools and resources where, um, you know, young kids have, um, have developed to be able to talk to your grandparents about, hey, like, that's not cool, or hey, that's potentially wrong. And so I think it starts at home. Uh, including myself and my own family. How do you start that conversation? I mean, how have you started that conversation? For me, I started with the history of violence against Black lives, essentially. George Floyd, his death was just one of way too many. And, you know, I lived through Roddy King Trayvon, too many names. And it started with talking about the systems that uphold white supremacy and uphold injustice and police brutality and all the BS that black communities go through. And I started with asking my parents, what do you think about this? Like, why do you think this exists? Why do you think cops get away with this year after year? Why do you think nothing happens and that was my entry point and asking them questions of how come there hasn't been enough progress. And when you ask them those questions, for me, they didn't have a lot of answers. You know, they didn't have a good response of, well, this is why. And I think when you start putting people like my own parents on the spot, it forces you to really examine the issues at hand. And realize there is a problem. It's not just a, a thing. It's not just like, oh, it's, it'll always be this way. These are things that are just simply unfair in humanity. 
and we have to do something about it. Clarence, man, like what's the utopia? Like what's the perfect outcome? What I th- what I think about during this, uh, especially like during the pandemic, you know, we've talked about like the the anti-Asian racism that that like proliferated through all, all the communities all over the country, especially in the Bay Area, too. You know, we had the rise in BLM protests, but I would see like a bunch of uh, I would see a lot of Asian people at these protests in the early days. In my head, I always think about what if we're able to quickly jump ahead in progress and black and Asian communities who like, you know, over generations have often lived side by side, you know, around each other, next to each other, like started pulling together. I think there's a way to like work together more and kind of find a common bond. Like that would be incredible. But what's your best outcome with all this work that you're doing? Like having these challenging conversations within your own community about um relationships with black people like what what do you what do you hope happens what's the perfect thing that could come out of this i think for me step one is awareness i think there's just so many people that have not seen it they they haven't seen that they are potentially really white adjacent or potentially that colonialism and colonial thoughts have really set into their own behaviors and their own way of life and so i think step one for me is really awareness in both white folk and Asian folk and, and everyone that forces them to examine, question how they live and what are the small, tiny decisions every day that could potentially amount to harm. I would love to see a lot more solidarity among BIPOC. You know, I think the reality is we do live quite separately and distinctly a lot of the time. I think communities are probably not as tight knit or not as chill with each other as they think. For me, it's a better understanding of what oppression looks like, that our experiences might not be the same, Mm -hmm. but we can identify with each other's struggle. And in terms of Black Lives Matter, I think we have to realize that for black folk, that struggle is really different, similar, but very different. And I think once we kind of realize that, maybe that's when we can start pulling together and realize like how we can actually join forces and how solidarity can can do better for these communities. So the thing that really gets me about Clarence is that his, the way he talks about stuff is so upfront. It's so much more confrontational than you would think a Canadian would be, I guess. <laughs> is that stereotyping? No, but that's, it's funny though. <laughs> <laughs> because there are parts in the in the zine where he says things like, when Black people win, we all win. And this recipe is pure comfort food. The gravy should be bold and silky. You know, like it's very much just going outright and saying it. Whereas in food media in general, right, we're so coy about this stuff. Like we say, uh, you know, immigrants make American food great. But that's not like saying that we shouldn't put their kids in cages. You know what I mean? Like it's it's different. Yeah. I mean, some, and I feel like this conversation, he's, he's having the conversation the right way. 2020 isn't a year for, I don't know, quiet, meek dialogue. Like journalism, it's different. We have to report things, we tow a line, we have to, you know, just like really balance in how we report things and the comments that we make. But, you know, for somebody like Clarence, like it's, I feel like it's the natural progression of the conversations that we've been having for years that are happening right now. It's just the tone is that there is a right way to look at things. And there is a wrong way to look at things. And the way Clarence approaches it is that he's amplifying the one thing he knows well, and that's the right way to talk about what's happening today. Yeah. And that's scary, isn't it? It's scary to have just a belief 
and to put it out there in clear, non-couched language right. and to just not pull your punches. Yeah. I mean, we think about and, and, and look what we do, right? Like we're, you know, at, like I said, as journalists and we approach things with like a fair and kind of, you know, appropriate, equal look. Think about the insane comments that you'll get when people are really upset about you bringing up a particular issue about race or equity or representation, right? And now I can't even imagine the stuff that Clarence probably gets when he fully exposes his own viewpoint that, you know, like you said, like the, the tone's hard, like it's, you know, it can, it can feel combative, but it's just really direct. Like, man, I, I, I bet sound like an old person, but I, I bet that ruffles some feathers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of us are afraid of being dismissed if we take on too much confrontation or we come off as too aggressive, which I think is a scam, first of all. Um, he he demonstrates sort of the lie of that, where you can say a lot of really important things um, with a tone that is not so respectable. And I think it's a reminder, too, that nonviolence and pacifism and anti-carceralism are not, you know, meek and passive. They're angry. I think pacifists are the pacifists I know are angry ass people. Um, and they will talk to you in a way that demonstrates that. And I think that shows sort of the the level of urgency to to what they believe. I think that's a great point. The level of urgency. That's that is a perfect thing to highlight. So I asked Clarence about that too and just how how he felt about taking that tone. I think I just write the way I speak and the way I think. I think the zine and my food writing or just my writing in general is just an invitation to how I would talk to me and my friends. And this is almost like an open conversation of like, if you want to know what BIPOC talk about and how we talk all the time, this is how it is. At least that's how I talk to me and my friends. And so life is political, I suppose, and food is political. And you can't talk about some weird bastardized version of <laughs> pho without talking about these issues. And so when it comes to you know, assembling uh, a collection of recipes that I think tells my story and tells the story of what Chinese people are going through and, and what Black Lives Matter means to me. This is just real talk for me. And it's kind of just a very open, um, unfiltered way of talking about both food and life. Yeah, I can easily imagine you, you know, I don't know, being in your kitchen and hearing you talk about these things. And all of a sudden, you know, beckoned me over to, to taste something, you know, um, those conversations in real life do butt up against each other, I think, a lot more than people think. I, I just think conversations flow like that. And I think food and food people are way more complex than just like a someone who's teaching you how to make some sauce. You know, like this is just life and like the life that we're living in in 2020 is super complex. And so I think this is just a reflection of probably this year and my emotions right now, but also some real shit that we are all going through. And so if you're going to cook in 2020, like this is what's up. Can you talk about how important the food is, like the messaging and what you talk about, like on these pages, 
like the recipes are dope too. Like how, how important is the food and all this messaging? Because I think that gets lost. Like the food has to be bomb too to keep people's attention, right? Or does it not matter? You know? Oh, the recipes are bang. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, people have responded and say like, oh, hey, I tried this recipe or like, oh, I, I couldn't believe the sauce worked out. And like, I, I've never seen this recipe before. So I think I chose food and dishes that I think were maybe misrepresented or underrepresented in the canon of Chinese cuisine, specifically Cantonese cuisine. I think I haven't seen recipes written quite like this before. So part of it was just me wanting to like put it out there. Like I want people to taste this food. Like it's awesome. The the way Americans eat food is like very binary, right? And I think that's such a great description of how they see food. And then, you know, you can kind of like stretch that to how like many people, um, you know, interact with communities, how they view communities through food. But can you talk about like the importance of not seeing food as binary and kind of like, you know, you don't have to describe how people are stuck in that. But can you talk about why it's important to see beyond that? I think the cliche of, you know, you are what you eat is really true. You know, I think the way you shop, the way you eat what you cook is ultimately kind of a reflection of your relationship with communities around you. And so if you're only shopping at like a certain grocery store, or if your takeout is usually like the same old, or if you're usually cooking continental food, you know, you're really not going to get to know your neighbor and get to know the people in these communities that are cooking other foods. And so in terms of, you know, solidarity and, you know, changing your point of view of you know, race relations, the food is a great entry point. And I think Americans are probably not as adventurous as they think. I think you still see a lot of meat and potatoes. I think you still see a lot of 90s style food. And there's just so much good food out there, but I just don't see it. You know, I work in um, a, a primarily black and brown community and you see the type of customers come in, you know, it, it is a reflection and ultimately a vote using your dining dollars. You know, how you spend your money is a vote on who you believe in and the communities that you support. And I think being more adventurous, getting out of your comfort zone can only lead to better things. Yeah. And, and uh, side note about Toronto. So does is Drake just always around everywhere? Do you guys just... <laughs> I I have to ask, man. I don't know, I don't know how much he kicks it in. You know, I don't know how much how Drake, how often Drake is out in Toronto. I'm just curious. I want to know. I, I think Drake sightings in Toronto are are not as frequent as you think. I think uh, he he's he's home. He's got his mansion. Uh, he's probably in LA more than he is in Toronto. Uh, I don't know, but I know he I know he has his food spots. Um, I, I know he reps a lot of restaurants, but I don't think the sightings are as um, as, as much as people think. Damn. Damn, damn. Okay, so I need to ask, what is it about Drake? Why are we talking about him right now? I mean, look, Drake is from Toronto. And this is the thing that I've been trying to tell people. Uh, over the last couple of years, man, people really care about where rappers eat. You know, like rappers are opening restaurants. Obviously, they've been doing that for a while. But they're, like where they dine has become a thing. In the Bay Area, people really pay attention to where you know, people like E-40 go, you know, and one of the more popular vegan spots out here, Vegan Mob, is run by a guy who used to rap and all his, you know, all his rapper buddies eat there and everybody goes there because of that. So 
you know, I got to ask where Drake eats and um, because, you know, he's been to the French Laundry out, you know, out here. He's been to like he was he went to Brown Sugar Kitchen when it was in West Oakland and uh, dude might know some stuff. Okay, but do all Torontonians know what Drake's up to? Is the question? I mean, maybe maybe that's my poor assumption. I should I shouldn't assume that. Like everyone <laughs> just lives next door to Drake, and he just walks into their house and stuff. But uh, but you know, it's worth a shot. Like, who knows what what if Clarence was best friends with them? Then all of a sudden, we got Drake on the podcast. You know, I, that's I had true. To, had to shoot my shot. <laughs> Right, you're hustling. I get it. I respect that. Okay, enough about Drake. Back to Clarence. If people want to find Chinese protest recipes, how do they get it? We just finished our pre-sale now, but um, there will be more. There will be a limited quantity of books available uh, in November. So um, you could just DM me. There will be instructions in my highlights, and um, hopefully you get a copy. And where do they DM you? What's your Instagram account? My handle is at the God of Cookery. Awesome. Yeah, Thank you this was so much all, for joining us, this Clarence. Awesome, this has been man. such a delight. Really good to have you on. Thank you, guys. This was fun. I really respect what you guys do. So this, is, this was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. So that was our interview with Clarence Kwan. The biggest takeaway for me, especially right now, something that's really poignant for me personally, is that talking with folks like Clarence makes me realize that there are so many other things you can do besides vote to engage with the people around you. You know, you can make a zine. You could uh, raise money for nonprofits and other community organizations. Yeah. It's a big world out there, right? Nothing entirely revolves around whether one person gets 270 electoral votes. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You know, you can be creative in how you have dialogues about social and and political issues these days. And, you know, this might be a zine on, you know, online or it could be something else. Like, I feel like right now is the time where people shouldn't feel limited, you know, thinking that, as you said, like voting's the only option. Um, yeah, kind of do you. <laughs> yeah, do you and also have as many conversations as you can with the people around you about the stuff that matters. So true. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to Clarence Kwan for being in conversation with us. And thank you to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode. You can read the transcript of our full interview with Clarence at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.